Ooh, good morning. Hey, if you are in elementary, you actually do have class today. So you can either hang out and listen to me, or you can go color or do something way better. So uh, your choice, all right? <laughs> hey, good morning. How are you guys? Good. Hey, my name is Christian, and I am the high school director uh, here at Eastridge. And um, it's 2020. Like, Happy New Year, right? Is that, is that not crazy? Like, I'm, I'm 33 years old, and that makes me feel ancient. Um, I don't know how it makes you guys feel. I guess that depends. Um, but 2020, wow. Um, it feels like a new year. Like, my legs currently feel like jello. I've been working out for four days. Um, and I am hungry, my intermittent fast. I got another half an hour on that bad boy, so I hope someone will bring me a snack here soon. Um, I'd ask you guys to raise your hands too, but if you've been doing push-ups, yeah, so just, you're good. Um, man, I can't believe we're here. We love doing new stuff, don't we, when the, when the new year hits? We're going to better ourselves, change ourselves, make ourselves better. Last year, 2019, I did the same thing, not so much on the workout side. I uh, was going to work out my brain. I was going to read more. And thanks to Audible and some other tools like Kindles and things like that, I was able to read more this year than probably I've ever read, which isn't saying a lot, but I still was. And I read a lot of books. Uh, my kind of genre of choice is this mystery, crime, thriller, sprinkle a little murder in there, you know, those type of things. Um, but I did end up reading one book that had to do with history, and history's, history's not my thing. And I read about this guy, this guy named Benjamin Franklin. And uh, Benjamin Franklin, if you, all you know about Benjamin Franklin is, is that you try to collect as many green papers with his face on it. Uh, I'm going to teach you a few other things about him today. But Benjamin Franklin was an amazing man. He did a lot of crazy cool things. He, uh, he invented the lightning rod, which was, which was new and unique. He, he invented bifocal eyeglasses, which some of us use, right? And the help. Like, he, he did crazy cool stuff. He created the odometer. He created clean-burning fuel uh, gas stoves. He created the rocking chair. I mean, like, crazy cool inventions, right? So you can imagine this guy that has done a bunch of cool stuff, uh, in invention side, says, hey, you know what? I bet I can do some other stuff on the systematical side as well. So what does he do? He says, uh, I'm going to engineer the US Postal Service. If he was here today, I would have a few like updates for him. But like, you know, pretty cool idea, right? So he does the postal system. He organized the first fire department. He helped start the University of Pennsylvania. He wrote best-selling books. And then like in his free time, because he's got nothing else he's been working on, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I think I'm going to help form the United States of America. You know, just basic stuff. This guy didn't go to school after the age of 10, right? He just, he just figured it out. So can you imagine Benjamin Franklin, New Year shows up, and he's like, hey, I'm going to make, make a resolution this year, and he's like done all of this stuff. Like, what, what do you do next, right? Like, it's not like, oh, I'm only going to, you know, eat one Twinkie a month this week, you know, like, or this year. Like, I don't know. Like, he's going to do something crazy. And sure enough, at the age of 20, he decides to do something crazy. His resolution is this. He says, I'm going to achieve moral perfection. Why not? I'm going to achieve moral perfection. And this was his plan. He, he's quoted as saying as this. As I knew or thought I knew what was right or wrong, I did not see why I might not, might not always do 
the one and avoid the other. If he knew what was right versus what was wrong, then when the opportunity presented itself, he would always choose the right one, right? It seems logical, seems to make sense. If he knew what was right, he could always do what was right every time, right? Easy peasy. So what he decided to do is he settled on 13 virtues. He took 13 virtues, and he said, I'm going to master these 13 virtues. I'm not going to read them all, but some of them were temperance and sincerity and justice and moderation and tranquility and humility, like really good virtues, right? We're trying to achieve moral perfection. So he said, I'm going to take these 13 virtues, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a chart. So I'm going to put the days of the week at the top, and then I'm going to put all my 13 virtues along the side. And he does this on a piece of paper. And he's going to go through his day, and if he does not achieve moral perfection in one of those areas, in one of those virtues, he takes a, a pen and he puts a black dot. So he's like, ah, oh, man, didn't get tranquility this week. Okay, Tuesday, black dot, right? And so this is the way he's going to do it. Now, Benjamin Franklin is a very smart man, right? He's done all these things. So there is no possible way that he's going to be able to master all 13 at one time. So what he does is he says, hey, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to take my time, and I'm going to, I'm going to master each one of these. I'm going, to, I'm going to give it adequate space, right? So I'll start with the first one, and I'll give it a week. And when I give it a week and master it, then I'm going to move on to the next one. And then I'll give that one a week, and then I'll master it. And 13 weeks later, bam, here I are. I have achieved it. But what happened in reality after those 13 weeks is he realized that his paper was so full of dots that it was bleeding through. And he honestly, this is what he did. He said, you know what I need to do now? I need to create paper that's thicker. Like, so he worked on the paper problem. <laughs> Every day he failed to embody those things, right? It was, it was impossible. He's quoted as saying, I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell short of it. He was ambitious he had a resolution. He was a man that had accomplished a lot of things. He knew the difference between right and wrong, but even at the end of the day, he couldn't do it on his own. We're in Mark chapter 5, and we're continuing our journey in Mark. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open them up. Like I said, Mark chapter 5. We are in verse, going to start in verse 21 today. And uh, today's going to be kind of an interesting day, and we're going to jump a little bit, right? Because Kevin was here last week, and he shared a story, and that story happens to be right in the middle of my story. So we are going to start in the beginning, and we're going to kind of recap what Kevin talked about last week, and then we'll finish it off, right? So we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 21. And it says this, when Jesus had again crossed over the uh, by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So Jesus is crossing over the Sea of Galilee. That's the lake. He's crossing back and forth from one side to the other. One side is predominantly Jewish. The other side is predominantly Gentile. He's coming back, and he gets to this town of Capernaum, which is this fishing town on the, on the northern sea of the sea, uh, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, right? And he's, and he's back, and he's been here. He spent time here. He knows this place. This is where Peter would have lived during Jesus' ministry. And this is a small town. Like Kevin talked about last week, he even showed a picture. This town would have had a synagogue. So this is a small Jewish fishing community. And Jesus is back um, on this side. In verse 22, Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And this is interesting, because if you read the book of Mark, Mark doesn't often use proper names. 
So the fact that we know this guy's name is Jairus means that this guy is an important person. And we know that even further by how, how Mark describes him, that he is a synagogue leader. Other transitions, translations say that he's a synagogue ruler. And what that means is, is that he is a guy that kind of like leads the church. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's the president. He's the head of it. And this wouldn't have been like a, a paid or a, a technically like professional religious position. This was just a, a lay member of the church, of the synagogue, that is given this role. And some of this stuff that he would have done is he wouldn't have been asked to lead worship, and he wouldn't have been a rabbi, like I said, but he would have been asked to do things like supervising worship. He would have been asked to do things like running the weekly school or caring for the building, providing security. He was kind of like the face of the synagogue, if you will. So this is an important person in their community. This is a person that most everyone would have known, and they wouldn't have been like, hey, this is some guy. No, this is Jairus. We know this guy. So Jesus shows up, right? He gets, he's, on, he's coming across the water, right? He shows up, gets on shore, and Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, shows up right away. And what does he do? He bows at his feet and says, hey, what, what's going on here? Like, something, something's up, right? Something clearly is going on. Jairus bowing at Jesus' feet would have significant meaning, not only to us as the reader, but also to the people that have seen, seen him, right? See, the, the, an interesting thing, and the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us this, but it's just some context to what's going on here as well, is that oftentimes these synagogue r- rulers, these synagogue leaders, would have been tied in and close with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are, are another kind of sect that, that are not really on board with what Jesus has been doing. They're not really on board with Jesus' ministry. They're, they're very law-following. They're, they're by the books. And so the fact that maybe the ruler that would have had connection with these Pharisees is, is bowing down at this Jesus guy's feet right away, people are going, oh, whoa, is he, is he allowed to do that? Are we okay with this, right? What's going on here? So it's significant. The crowds would have noticed. And I think it would have been a daring act of not only respect for Jesus, right? but it's also probably a daring act of faith. So what could possibly cause Jairus to take this type of action? What could possibly do that? We know, even before we get to the next verse, something's up, right? Something isn't right. And sure enough, something isn't right. Verse 23, he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Yeah, something's up. His daughter is dying, and he believes that Jesus has the power to heal her and to save her. Kevin asked us last week, and I think it's important to do this, is to sometimes just take ourselves and try to put ourselves in that situation, right? And just think about that. Like, let's, let's, let's step back. So, so Jairus knows that his daughter's sick, right? And he knows Jesus is away. And if he believes Jesus is the hope for this, can you imagine he's just sitting there being like, oh man, I hope Jesus comes back. I hope that guy comes back. I hope he comes back. And then the boat's coming, and he's like, oh, I think Jesus is on that boat. Oh, Jesus is on that boat. Jesus is on that boat. And he's coming, and then he gets to the shore, and it says that, right? It doesn't say like, oh, Jesus meandered through the city for five minutes. No, Jairus meets him at the shoreline, and you can just be imagining, oh, come on, like, I got a problem. I need you to fix it. Like, there's an incredible sense of urgency at this time, right? 
He's got a sick daughter. Jesus has finally showed up. Like, Jesus, please, 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 please. The time is of the essence. Verse 24, we continue, it says, so Jesus went with him. Yes! Like, yeah! Like, can you imagine? Jairus is like, it worked. Like, I'm going to tell my wife this is going to be good. We're, this is going to happen, right? Let's go. Come on. Here we go. Let me show you my house. It's over this way. We can get there quick. There's relief. Oh, my goodness. I've been waiting for him to get back. He got back. He said, yes, everything's going to be okay. <gasps> I can take a deep breath. But the second half of verse 24, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Once again, pretend you're in that situation. Oh, get away, guys. Come on. We got place. I got somewhere to go. Jesus said he's coming. Come on. You're like trying to pull him. You know, like, get out of the way. But there's this huge crowd that's all around him. And you just be this, get the sense of like, no, 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 no. Move, move, move. And at this point, we get a giant interruption. A giant interruption. Not only an interruption in Mark's story that we're reading, but a giant interruption for Jairus and for his family. From Mark 5, 24, verses 24 through verse 34, we, Jesus' attention is brought somewhere else. That's what we talked about last week. A woman shows up, right? And this woman has had health issues. She's a part of the crowd. She's had health issues. And she decides that she's going to act out on faith as well. She reaches out and she touches Jesus because she believes that he can heal him. She touches his, his cloak, and Jesus says, whoa, I feel the power went out from, from me. What's happening? And the crowd kind of disperses, right? This is a woman that's been dealing with an issue for 12 years. The crowd open up, opens up, and he sees this woman that's standing there. And Jesus says in verse 34, he says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And as you read the story, if, if, like we did last week, or if you read through it, and with each verse, right? Each verse you're going through, you've got to keep Jairus in the back of your mind, right? And you're thinking, with every second that's ticking, Jairus is like, let's go. I've got places to be, right? Why are we healing this woman right now? She's dealt with it 12 years. Can she last 12 more minutes? You know, like, let's, I've got, time is of the essence, there's tension. It's intensifying. You know it is inside of him. And in verse 35, we catch back up with Jairus and what's happening here. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, right? So Jesus is still in the crowds. He's just finished healing this woman. People are probably going, whoa, what's happened? And they say, your daughter is dead. Why bother this teacher anymore? I know we're in all different places. We've got different ages. We've all been through different life experiences. We all have a different life story. And this year, our family found out what it meant to lose an immediate member of our family. My wife called me uh, on a morning in May, and she had to share probably the hardest news that she's ever had to share with anybody. She had told me that her mom had unexpectedly passed away. And, and people say that like when you get news like that, it's like a punch to the gut. 
And like, it is, but I guess for me, it just felt like all the air just like sucked out of the room at the time. Like my chest got heavy and breathing got harder and like it kind of felt like I was underwater. And I started asking like, how? Like why? Like what's next, right? I was on the phone with her, and we're, and we're, st- and we're trying to plan things out. Where, you know, where do I go? Do I come pick you up? Do you come pick me up? What do we, what do, we do with the girls? What do, how do we, what's the next step? Do we have to call somebody? Like, in this five-minute phone call, something that I was completely unprepared for, right? In the moment, I did my very best to, like, do it myself, right? I started thinking about all the things that I could do to help. I started thinking about all the things that I could, that I could have changed about the situation. I started thinking about all the ways that I was now going to try to fix this impossible situation. And I felt anger, and I felt frustration, and I felt like it wasn't fair. And I think those are all feelings that Jairus probably gets at that moment, right? Are you kidding me? Jesus, you told me you were going to fix this, and you didn't. Are you kidding? Like, what am I going to do now? Do I have to go tell my wife this? Do I have to go and explain that? Like, what is happening? Are you, this is, this wasn't how it's supposed to be. And this interruption that happened ends up being so profitable for the woman, right? Man, she's healed after 12 years. We learned last week that she had been trying, she had been seeing doctors, and she had done everything she could. She had exhausted her, her, her resources in this. So profitable for this woman, but man, was it costly for Jairus. Man, confused, angry, without hope. I think if I was Jairus, I would be mad at the woman. Why did you do this right now? And I would be mad at Jesus. Why did you promise and then not fulfill on that? And in verse 36, we hear Jesus' instructions after this, right? The news is, hey, your daughter is dead. Guys, don't bother Jesus anymore. There's no point. This guy's not going to do it anymore. I, I think it's interesting that they use the word teacher there because he wasn't coming to teach them. He was coming to be a healer. But maybe some, maybe some of them never believed that he was actually a healer in the first place. Don't bother the teacher. Nothing he can do about it. And in verse 36, it says, overhearing, in some translations, even in the NIV, it says, ignoring what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. And this word for ignoring slash overhearing in the Greek has three meanings. And I think think they all are true about Jesus in this situation. The first one is to overhear something not intended for one's ears. The second is to pray or to pay no attention to or ignore. And the third is to refuse to listen or discount the truth of something. And isn't that exactly what Jesus does in this situation, right? He ignores it. He, he overhears it and he goes, eh, that's not intended for me. That, that truth isn't my truth, so over the head. He pays no attention to it. He doesn't, he doesn't respond. He doesn't go, oh, Jairus, I'm so sorry. Oh, I, I was going to be there, and I just couldn't make it this time. I didn't know that was going to happen. Or, oh, man, I know you must be feeling all these feelings right now. You're probably angry with me. You're probably feeling emotional. Don't worry about it. Let me give you comfort. No. Nope. Pays no attention to it. He almost refuses to listen 
and he refuses to discount the truth, right, of what's happened. And in that moment, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. What he's doing is asking Jairus to shift his focus from his circumstances, and man, all of that is bubbling up in that moment. His pain, his anger, his sadness, and to focus them on Jesus himself, right? Don't be afraid. I know you've got all these feelings. Just believe. And that's the challenge that's presented to Jairus, and it's the same challenge that's presented to each one of us that, who's ever, you know, claimed to have met Jesus before, right? Are we going to believe only in what our circumstances allow us to see? Or are we going to believe in the God who makes all things possible? Are we going to only believe in what our, what our circumstances, what they look like from our eyes, or are we going to actually believe in the God that can make all things possible? He gives Jairus one task, believe. Have faith. That's it. That's all you need at this moment. And the remainder of the story, it's going to swing like a giant pendulum, right? It's going to go from one side of the extreme of human despair, and it's going to swing to the complete other side of this divine possibility. And this, this tool, this idea of faith, is going to carry Jairus from despair to hope. Verse 37. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. So let's, let's see what's happening here, right? So Jesus says, Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Jairus must do something in that moment, we don't, we don't hear exactly what his response is, but he must do something to the point where Jesus follows him back to his house, right? So Jesus gets back to the house with Jairus. He takes a small group with him. He takes his closest disciples with him. He doesn't, says, hey, crowds, don't follow me on this one. And he gets there, and he hears mourning and crying and, and sadness. And this would, is completely, like, common in first century, right, in Israel, in fact, like mourners were a part of the culture, and it was usually like a group of women that would be a part of this, and they'd be paid by the, by the family of the, of the deceased, and they would be paid to come and weep over the body. In fact, it was written that the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman, right? Can you imagine like today, like Craigslist, looking for one wailing woman, um, what did you do this weekend? Well, I had three opportunities to wail. Um, so like, but that's what it was, right? So he gets there, and the pros are there. The professional mourners are in town. And he says, hey, you know what? She's not dead. She's asleep. And some people take that as like, oh, yeah, okay, Jesus, like, showed up, and clearly, like, oh, yeah, look, she's still breathing. Um, but no, like, these are professional people, right, that are there. And I think that that's why Mark puts this in there, to, like, to validate the fact that she was, she was actually dead. Because, like, if you do this as a profession, do you think you, like, get tricked by a sleeping girl? Like, no, you probably show up and you're like, oh, no, yeah. Right? Like, no, this is really happening. And the mourners, in fact, they laugh, 
right? They laugh at Jesus. <laughs> Are you serious? Like, oh, like, come on. This is clear as day, right? You got to be kidding me. And Jesus, I think, uses this term asleep to show that Jairus, that his daughter's condition is temporary, right? Hey, you, how, you're seeing your, how you're seeing your circumstances right now? Yeah, things are really bad. But how I see them is that this is temporary. She'll be restored. Verse 41. After he put them all out, meaning he's inside the room where she is, she, he kicks everyone out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with, with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Verse 40. Hey, I'm not about the show. This isn't like everyone out. I only need the family here, right? I'm not here to just like do magic for people. Everyone out. Talitha kum. That's Aramaic. And what it means is it means it's the, it's the feminine version and it means lamb or, or youth. And the last one, kum, is arise. Little lamb, little girl, arise. Little girl, get up. And this, this girl, she's brought back to life, right? Incredible. And Jesus demonstrates his great power as he brings her back to life, right? The power over death. In Luke's account, Luke also writes about the same, the same story. And in Luke's account, which Mark doesn't include, which I love this part, it, it says in here, it says, her spirit returned. Like, not only did she rise back up, but her spirit was back. And she, began, she stands up and begins to walk around the room, right? And Jesus instructs them, hey, get this girl something to eat. And once again, I think this is another, like, tool for us to realize, like, what really happened here. This wasn't a vision by just the people in this room. You know, it's not a hologram. Like, no, like, this is a real person that is, that is living again, that has been raised from the dead, and she's a human like the rest of us. She has physical needs. You know, she needs to eat. She needs to nourish her body. This girl needs a snack. Like, she's been through something, right? And Jesus says, do it. Feed this girl. And Mark kind of leaves us with this story, this the, the end of the end of chapter five. He leaves us with this, this little snack of his own, right? It's called the Markian sandwich, which I like. And it's this idea is that he starts off a story, this A1, talks about the beginning of Jairus. In the middle, he puts the story about, about the girl, and then he finishes it, A2, here, with finishing off the story about Jairus and his daughter, right? He creates this, this lovely little sandwich. And they have, they are meant to go together. They have, I don't know if, from, if you were here last week and then this week and you've picked up any of these small details, but there, there are tons, it's remarkable how, how kind of interconnected these stories are, right? Both stories have females that are healed by Jesus. Both stories are about daughters. Jesus calls the woman daughter. This is Jairus' daughter, both women have been ill. Or the, the number 12 is, is really interesting. The woman had been ill for 12 years, and this daughter, this, this Jairus' daughter, she's, she's 12 years old. 
Both situations would have caused Jesus to become unclean. Sometimes we don't think about that. But after he would have touched that woman, there's no way he would have been, around, been able to go around in crowds. After he would have touched a, a, a dead body, there's no way. Like, it, he, they both created an uncleanliness in Jesus. Both people had tried to fix their situations, right? Both of these weren't hopeless situations or like helpless people. We learned about the woman that she had been working really hard. She had been to doctors and they had, she had she'd done everything she could. I can't imagine that Jairus was like, well, oh well. You know, like, no, of course, he had done everything he could to try to help his daughter, right? They had, they had, they had extinguished all of their hope. They had extinguished all of their resources. And in the end, both were healed and both were touched by Jesus when they showed tremendous faith, Right? Faith has a lot of different um, definitions, and this one is one of my favorites. Faith is an absolute belief that God is constantly working behind the scenes in every area of our lives, even when he, there is no tangible evidence to support that fact. I like that. It's the absolute belief that God is constantly working behind the scenes in every area of our lives, even when there is no tangible evidence to support that fact. How I see my circumstances, these do not look good, but I am going to believe that God is working on the backside. Hebrews 11 verse 1 puts it this way, faith is being sure of what we hope for, it is being certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and being certain of what we do not see. This time of year, it's easy to start thinking about things that we can do to change our circumstances, right? I kind of joked about like working out and it's not a joke, it's actually happening, but, but like we try to change what, whatever our circumstances we're in. We're going to lose weight or we're going to save more money this year or we're going to get organized or we're going to quit some bad habits, right? We get all caught up in what can we do and if I plan this out and if I do it this way and, and how I'm going to make my life better. Man, if I only could do this, then my life would be better, right? We're snatching up exercise equipment like it's never been here before, right? We're buying just like pallets of protein powder at Costco. We're like, that's going to do it, you know? What can I do? Maybe this year you're like, man, I'm going to be really ambitious. I'm going Benjamin Franklin on this one. I'm achieving moral perfection again this year, right? You know, I don't know what it is for you, but we always get this idea, especially this time of year, that man, what can I do this year to make myself better? And I think what I want us to do today is to kind of challenge you, challenge myself into something different. I want us to challenge us to strive for something. It takes work. You can't just sit back with your feet kicked up and hopefully it just happens to you. It's like, like any other resolution. But I want to challenge you this year to strive for faith that defies defeat. Faith that defies defeat. Maybe you're in a situation where you're like, man, you know, kind of like that woman, I've been dealing with this health stuff for a long time. And I've been work- I, there's just nothing else that I can do about it. You feel completely defeated in the situation. Do you still have faith? Man, maybe it's finances, the same idea. Like, this year I'm going to save more. I'm in a bad spot. I've got, like, credit card bills coming out, you know, whatever. 
There's no way this could get any better. Faith that defies defeat. Relationships, you know? Man, my wife just left me. Or This can't be happening, right? How could God possibly be in this type of situation? Faith that defies defeat. Christianity, when you look back at it, right, is a religion based on faith. It's a faith-based religion. Sometimes that's what we call it. It's based on the faith in God. It's based in the in faith of, of his son, Jesus Christ, right? We believe that Jesus is who he says he was. We have faith in that. We believe that Jesus was the claimed Messiah, right? The promised Messiah, the son of God. We believe that he lived the perfect life and had died on a cross for our sins to atone for those sins. We believe that the gift that we receive because of that is is grace. When we place our faith and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, God takes our sins and he places them on the cross with Christ and gives us grace, right? And as Christians, we're called to believe this message and live in light of it. But man, it's still a struggle. It's hard. We can believe all those things in our minds, right? We can believe that, yeah, I believe in God, and I believe that Jesus was that, and I, and I believe that he died for me, and I, and I believe that, like, I, yeah, I believe I'm a sinner, and, like, and it's all in our heads, and it, it, believe, 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 and that is great, and that is important, and that's what we need. But at the same time, right, when we start to see things crumble, when we start to see our circumstances change, when we start to see things that don't add up to what we were currently believe in, then oftentimes our faith starts to fade as well, right? Well, oh, God said he was going to be there, and he wasn't, so now, no, I don't, my faith is fading. And in that moment, don't we often start to pick up, and like, all right, strap up, bootstraps, I'm going to do this myself. God, you didn't show up, so I got it this time, right? And that's the way we do it. And we start to interject ourselves, I'll fix this situation, I'll make it better, I'll control my situations, and that whole time, when things are starting to feel out of control and you're starting to feel like this can't be happening, Jesus is standing there, just like he was standing with Jairus. And he goes, hey, Christian, you know, hey, hey, Chad, hey, Steve, hey, Mary, you know, whatever. Don't be afraid, just believe. In 2004, Willow Creek, it's a church in, in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, decided to do this big like survey. It was really cool, I think. Uh, they, they, did, they surveyed 250,000 people, almost 1,000, 1,500 churches, all different types of uh, small churches, big churches, you know, Baptist churches, whatever. They sur- surveyed as many like Christians as they could. It was a three-year, three-year survey. And, and what they were trying to do is, and after the survey, they were trying to figure out, you know, some, some tips about how people behave and, and all this kind of different stuff in the church. And their conclusion, they came to a conclusion about the impact of spiritual engagement, which sounds very fancy. And this is, this is what they, they wrote. Nothing has a greater impact on spiritual growth than reflection on Scripture. If churches could do one thing to help people at all levels of spiritual maturity grow in their relationship with Christ, their choice is clear. They would inspire, encourage, and equip their people to read the Bible. 
specifically to reflect on Scripture for meaning in their lives. And this is the big one. Bible engagement is the single most spiritual catalytic activity a person can engage in. If you want to grow your faith, the single best thing you can do is engage in the Bible. And they spent three years, quarter million people, 1,500 churches, and they came up with this. And that is fantastic, right? I think we can all agree upon that. I would challenge them that that if they would have just read their Bible, they wouldn't have had to spend three years doing it because it says it very clearly in there, the exact same thing. In Romans 10, verse 17, it says this, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ, right? If you want to grow your faith, what do you do? You've got to engage in the word. If you want to grow You've got, to, you've got to read it. You've got to hear, hear what he says. And, and not just hear it and believe it, but then you've got to like live it out. You've got to, you've got to meditate on it. You've got, to, you've got to actually kind of soak it in, right? Faith comes from hearing the message. It's through hearing and reading and meditation in scriptures that we begin to experience a strong, confident faith that excludes worry and fear. So Duane uh, has been working with us, the, some of the guys that have been up here uh, preaching over the last year or so. And uh, one of the things that he, he gave us was a, a book on, on preaching. And one of the big things is, is you're not supposed to use big, long quotes. Like, that's a no-no. So Duane's not here, so I'm going to use a big, long quote. <laughs> but I think he's going to like this one. Because this gun is, comes from like one of the, I don't know, like big time smart thinkers of our generation, right? And this is what it says. It says, uh, it says this, and resilient Christians were aiming, deep, uh, were aiming deeper and more pointedly at the lie of the self-help movement that has been foisted on you and that you're the problem so you can fix it, right? That's what we're talking about. Hey, you got an issue? Don't worry, you can do it, you got it. The really sick thing about the lie is that it cannibalizes the true and honest yearning of the human heart for the true way of Jesus and matuates into its own purposes. The result is always more anxiety and outrage, loneliness and hopelessness. You can try, you can try, you can try, but it's just going to end in a bad way. It's a cycle we see all around us at nauseam. But resistance to the lie is not futile, as the shadow wants us to believe. We have been promised that we can live resilient lives with resurrection power, and there is plenty of real-time evidence around us that that promise is true. Dr. Dwayne Tassell. (laughs) You're not the fix, right? Benjamin Franklin, that dude is way better than most of us in this room, right? And he couldn't do it. You're not the fix. It only leads to anxiety, to hopelessness. So don't try to be. You can't do it on your own. Faith that defies defeat. Resurrection power. God's promise. Do you believe? It's right there. This year, are you going to choose to believe on only those circumstances that, we, that you can see? Or are you going to believe in the God who makes all things possible? Jesus has his hand out once again telling you, don't be afraid, just believe. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, Lord, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you so much that you have, you've given us yourself. 
God, I pray that we would, we would have faith that can move mountains this year. God, that we would interact with your word, that we would interact with you, that we would that we'd dive in deeper and figure out who we have our faith in. And God, no matter where we are, no matter how dire things look, God, that we would know that you're behind the scenes, that you have a plan for our lives, a plan to prosper us, and God, that we would trust in that. And even during the hardest times of this year, God, that we would look out and realize that, that you're the author, you're the perfecter, and God, that we can have our full trust and faith in you. In your holy name, I pray. Amen.